This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Here is your host, Laura Zarrow. Welcome to Women at Work and our weekly conversation about how we can get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, for today's show featuring an entrepreneur who turned her personal passion into two highly successful businesses that help people all over the country become better versions of themselves every single day. Our phones are open at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And if you'd like to join the conversation or get advice about who you can become a better you, give us a call. 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we really would love to hear from you. How many of you start the new year making plans to get physically fit, more financially secure, emotionally satisfied? Or perhaps you even ask how you can make a more positive impact on the world around you. Today's guest has done all that and has done it on a grand scale. Ruth Zuckerman is the co-founder of Soul Cycle and Flywheel, both wildly successful companies that innovated the studio cycling movement. Ruth's path to her amazing success wasn't always clear, though. She studied dance in college and pursued it as a career. Not surprisingly, it didn't pay the bills, despite her significant talent and superb training. So she taught group fitness in a small dance aerobics class in her neighborhood in New York until she got married. Twelve years and twin daughters later, her marriage dissolved, and Ruth was on a quest yet again to find herself and build a career that was right for her. And that she did. Seizing on her own love for spinning and a powerful, prescient voice inside, Ruth parlayed her passion for indoor cycling, her teaching experience, and her amazing natural networking skills to not only build a career, but build two businesses along the way. Ruth is now the creative director at Flywheel and continues to inspire people through the classes classes she teaches there. And her new memoir, Riding High, How I Kissed Soul Cycle Goodbye, co-founded Flywheel and built the life I always wanted, is in stores now. And I couldn't be more thrilled to welcome Ruth to the show today. So with that, Ruth, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you so much, Laura. Really happy to be here. Ruth, before we dive into all of my questions, I want to start with the book. Um, Because, you know, dancer, fitness instructor, entrepreneur and innovator, now you're an author. What made you decide to write it? It's funny. uh, For many years after I had already founded SoulCycle and then Flywheel, people would often tell me, you should really write a book. And I just kind of took it as flattery and I would sort of yes them and say, oh, yeah, no, maybe one day, but never really took the suggestion seriously. And one day it was suggested to me again by a friend of mine and someone who I had just met recently and was very um, intrigued by my career. And he said, you should write a book. And I said, no, yeah, I've heard that before. And then he said, no, you should really write a book. And in fact, I'm going to introduce you to a literary agent. (laughs) And so I said, okay. I mean, he basically took me by the hand and introduced me to this man who ended up being my literary agent. And uh, he invited me to his home and he said, tell me your story. And I told him my story. And by the time I got home, there was a contract in my inbox. That is amazing, Ruth. Yes, it was amazing. Uh, and, and that it's, it's not unlike other things where it's these relationships um, bring people to you who see something magical in you, and then yes. that yields these opportunities. Um, we're going to talk a lot about all the things that you've learned about process. Um, but I want to start with, how did you, what was your process for writing the book? How, did you collaborate? Did you stay up all night, you know, writing notes? <laughs> you know, I did have a collaborator, thank God, because... For me, um, the writing wasn't challenging at all. I've always loved to write, and once I started, it really flowed very easily, but the thought of kind of organizing it all, and you know, I didn't necessarily know how to have a very dramatic beginning or ending, or really how to put it all together, and so she, uh, her name was Holly, and she helped me enormously with that, Um, but I sat down to do it uh, in a summer, and I started at the beginning of the summer, and I was done by the end of the summer. So it took me two months, which isn't that long. Did you breathe at all that summer? <laughs> uh, I did. I really enjoyed the process. And what's interesting is, and I talk about this in the book, um, I talk about how important it is for us to kind of expose ourselves 
to new things and be open to other possibilities. And I don't know, almost 20 years ago, I decided out of the blue to take a course in memoir writing and because I knew that I loved to write. And I never in a million years while taking that course thought I would ever write a memoir. And it's just interesting to me that I did. So (laughs) there you have it. So um, somewhere in your past, you got this training, like almost like the heavens were directing you to go learn to write a memoir. Exactly. And you've also had a lot of training in other things, dance and fitness. And then you've had these real life experiences where you're applying it, collaborating, and really you keep bringing ideas to life. When you think about your own way of moving from start to finish, how do you feel now about your capacity to invent new things and make them real? Because I am who I am, I still to this day um, have a little trouble owning my success. I'm, I'm getting better at it. But um, I think the most important part for me was through all the points of you know, different examples of failure and then getting myself back on my feet and essentially reinventing myself over and over again. Those moments really taught me that I had a certain inner strength that I didn't really consciously know that I had, but I certainly, you know, after each time I fell, so to speak, that strength was certainly there to get me through to the next invention. And I think that was a really important lesson for me to learn about myself. And that, and I think we all have resilience in us. It's kind of a muscle that can Mm -hmm. always get stronger. And unfortunately, sometimes we don't know about it until we're tested. (laughs) But um, I think it's a great lesson for all of us to know that we're already strong. And through our life experiences, we just get stronger. Ruth, I want to talk about one of your early life experiences, because I think um, at first glance, it defies, it doesn't make a sensible equation to a lot of people, Um, that you had great high school education, you were a stellar student, um, a committed dancer, trained musician, and you went to Mount Holyoke and majored in dance. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people, particularly in the business world, who would not say dance plus effort equals business maven. And you, however, when you talk about things like giving a shot, falling down, standing back up, resiliency, and also that vibration between um, a drive and an anxiety about performance, it says to me, your dance training wasn't unimportant to who you are now. So true. I couldn't agree more. And I think that all of our experiences as we grow up Um, all play an important part in how we end up. And I don't necessarily think I knew that at the time, but when I think back now, I mean, taking dance classes from age 8 through 22 taught me the importance of discipline and, um, you know, the the art form of dance. When you're a dancer, you never quite uh, succeed in that you can always improve upon yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why dancers are in dance class all day, no matter what their where their career career has gotten as a dancer. So that was a real learning lesson for me too. That we have to keep working on it. And again, if we fail, if something trips us up, we keep going. And again, the discipline and persistence in dance really helped me with that. Now there were rewards that you found in dancing. You were really passionate about it. What yes. were they? What did you love about it? I loved. I loved the performance aspect. I loved being up there in front of an audience. And what's interesting to me, again, in retrospect in my life, is that I was actually a very quiet and shy little girl and grew up with quite a domineering mother who uh, didn't leave much room for me to have a voice. And it became very clear to me through my own self-exploration process that dance was the perfect outlet for me. It was a perfect way for me to express myself without using my voice. And I, I just find that really interesting. So it gave you the sense of self, but it's also some dance highly collaborative. It is highly co- collaborative for sure. You're dancing <laughs> usually with an ensemble and you're working with a choreographer. And yes, you definitely learn how to work with people. And I mean, the other thing, which maybe you were planning on getting to was just how much dance played a part in my falling in love with spinning and Mm -hmm. indoor cycling because they're so related. 
Well, I, I am going in that direction because okay. I think this is fascinating because, yeah. you know, I'm, um, you know, have my roots in the arts, too. And I deeply believe that they have values beyond what other people see. And it's so exciting for me to see the direct and indirect ways that dance fueled the amazing things that you've done. Yes. But also how you've moved through different stages and how you've coped with change. Because even for those of us who are not beautiful, brilliant trained dancers and creating, you know, world-class businesses, we <laughs> we all um, go through this process of having to take their times in our lives that come to end, sometimes mm-hmm. because we outgrow them, sometimes because we choose to end them, sometimes they're changed for us. But that process can be unnerving. So, yes. um, and you've gone through a number of these and you write about them beautifully in the book. Um, but for this first one, when you stopped dancing, mm-hmm. how did you replace those rewards? Did you find them? I mean, eventually I did, but it took a while. And um, that was a learning lesson, too, in terms of, uh, you know, you might end up doing something after you give up your passion. You might end up finding something that's the, la- the furthest thing from your passion. And, at the same time, with that experience, you're learning about something you don't want to do. And everything has a learning lesson. I worked uh, for a catering company in the West Village in New York, and I was an office manager, and I knew I hated working in an office. I hated being <laughs> right. behind a desk, and I knew that that was something that was not going to work for me. And um, obviously, going back to group fitness was a way of being physical and loving what I do. And um, finding spinning, again, was a way to kind of channel my, my creativity that I had lost when I gave up dancing. You're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Ruth Zuckerman. She's the co-founder and creative director at Flywheel, and she's talking to us about her new book, Riding High. If you've got a question for us, give us a call. You can reach us at 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. And we'd love to know what changes are you going through and how are you finding the ways to reinvent yourselves? And what questions have you got for Ruth? Give us a call. You can reach us 1-844-WHARTON. That's 844-942-7866. So I want to talk for a minute about collaboration. You know, as we were talking about before, it's essential to the ensemble experience of being in a dance company or even being in a dance class. Mm-hmm. And um, as a fitness instructor, you had a certain amount of autonomy. Yet the work that you did that followed in building both SoulCycle and Flywheel was highly collaborative. How did you learn to collaborate when it wasn't in the same context you had worked in before? Meaning in the spin class. Yeah. So how did you go from, because, you know, sometimes it's that we have the skill and sometimes it's that the context helps us put those skills to use. You took those skills and you put them to use in very different environments. For sure. And, um, you know, the joy that I used to get from dancing with an ensemble and and moving together as an an ensemble um, really very easily translated on the spin bike because I could give the class particular movements to perform on the bike. And when everyone did it at the same time, there was a certain power behind it and a great feeling that all the riders had because they were all in sync and they were, they were doing something together and enjoying the group experience. So it was just, um, so to speak, the perf- the bike that indoor bike was the perfect vehicle for this. And on top of that, um, in terms of working with an ensemble or working with a group of riders, we add music on top of it, so which is obviously integral in both situations. And the music becomes so important mm-hmm. in the success of the ride and keeping the riders engaged and keeping their interest. And in a, in a weird way, it also kind of takes on its own art form. Oh, it absolutely does. Just so you know, I'm a swimmer and a runner, and I also spin. And I, it's something I discovered when I hurt myself, mm-hmm. I think, like a lot of people. Yeah. And I was dubious. I don't like group classes. My two mm-hmm. sports are very solitary, kind of on purpose. Yet it's electrifying. I find myself smiling out loud when I don't plan <laughs> on it. I love that. 
And it, it, there's something infectious. And I didn't even understand what it was until I read the book and heard you articulate it. And then to discover how designed that experience is. Yes. Talk to me about how you, you know, spinning. I remember when it first started, it, was it just like another weird way to exercise? Was it just a way to get a bunch of us in a room? And it's a lot more than that. How did you start to understand the power and potential of spinning? Really by, you know, experimenting in the classes I was teaching and that started right when I started teaching and I, I would see kind of what appealed to people and what didn't, what drew them in, what kept them engaged and I saw that there were a few factors, but one was it, the music I picked. What what did I put on my playlist? And I made sure, for example, to curate it in a way so that there was hopefully something for everyone. I mean, music is so subjective, but you have a whole room full of different age groups and genres of people. And so my goal was always to get something on the playlist that everyone liked. And so between that and then adding kind of this emotional component where I started feeling freer and freer talking about challenges that I was going through in my life. And sure enough, they would resonate with people in the, in the class. And I never talked about things in terms of me or I or me this. It was always, they were always talked about in very general terms because I knew that whatever I was going through or experiencing someone else was in the class. And by doing this, I would notice that at the end of every class, sure enough, a rider would approach me and say, wow, I felt like you were talking directly to me today when you told that story about whatever X. Um, and so I saw how gratifying that was for the riders. And quite frankly, it was gratifying for me too, to know that I touched someone or made someone feel better at the end of 45 minutes. It, I also loved that because I've experienced that in classes. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, I started making playlists kind of as like love notes to boyfriends. And then, <laughs> Definitely. And then to see how you um, and also that I hear the lyrics and I think about them and there's the emotional experience yeah. of music and then the emotional experience of moving to music and that you understood that enough to orchestrate that to create an experience for the riders. Exactly. And and the differentiator is you're on an indoor cycling bike. You're going nowhere physically. And, you know, as opposed to running, let's say, you still have to have a certain amount of consciousness on, or, you know, is there a rock ahead of you? Or are you going <laughs> to fall into that? Um, as I've learned the hard way, yes. <laughs> in the road, right. Exactly. And so there's that luxury when you're on a spin bike. You're safe. You're not going to fall true. off. You're not going to hit a rock. And so you can take that um, license to really let go and close your eyes and see what comes up. So in honor of all the people who are turning over new leaves for New Year's, um, you know, you started spinning in really intense, serious um, exercise studios in New York with a very committed fit population. But you also have brought spinning and soul cycle and flywheel to people who never would have defined themselves as athletes. Talk to us a little bit, and especially for the listeners out there who want to feel this experience but don't think they're ready for it. If they want to start, what do they need to know and do? Yes. Um, I want to talk about flywheel in the answer to that question because I agree with you. Um, spinning, for whatever reason, has always had a reputation of being very intimidating. And especially when we started flywheel, we, we really wanted to make a point to people that they can come in and try it if they've never done it before. And it doesn't matter what you look like or, or what kind of shape you're in because you have to start somewhere. And the beauty of it is you can start at your own pace. And at Flywheel, we intentionally made the room quite dark so that people didn't have to feel self-conscious. They didn't have to feel that anyone was looking at them. And they would kind of carve out their own space on the bike but they would be surrounded by this incredible, infectious group energy, which would, you know, keep them there, keep them engaged and add to the excitement of the class. But at the same time, they weren't feeling judged or looked at. So that was a big, a big component in making people feel uh, more willing to try it. Ruth, that's not a small thing. Like, I was one of those chubby kids in dance class with the big mirrors, and I mm -hmm. freaking hated it. Yeah. And now I go, and that big mirror, it's not about judgment. It's about, are my legs positioned properly? Exactly. Am I rocking back and forth as I'm pedaling? Um, and so that I know whether I need to correct form. And it's amazing how by protecting us 
from um, self-scrutiny, we actually can engage in self-improvement. Exactly. That's exactly right. So talk to me about other things that you were thinking about in creating this experience that also was for those of us who aren't really fit yet. I really, as I said, I really wanted people to find this kind of safe place, safe workout because it's low impact. And that was always kind of at the forefront whenever Mm -hmm. I created, when I created my method and, and taught it to other instructors was keeping the rider safe so that I don't hear about injuries. I, people can come and take class if they're 17 years old or if they're 82 years old. And I have people in my classes in their 80s. And so that was really so important to me to make sure everyone could do it. It was accessible. I also um, placed a lot of importance on the customer service and making sure there were people in there ready for you when you came on your bike so they could set you up properly and set your expectations and and let you know which part of the class is going to feel challenging and which part they can really, you know, slack off on if it was feeling like too much. Um, So just, again, making the most important thing the comfort of the person coming in. And it also sounds like that took place through several mechanisms. One was the attitude and culture of the studio, the availability of staff to help newbies get set, and the design of the bikes and the environment to support all kinds of bodies, and also the fact that you can go at your own pace. Exactly. Those things together are pretty powerful. They are. And then on top of that, and this was the differentiator when we started Flywheel, coming from SoulCycle, was we were the first to put the metrics on the bike to attach this little computer screen where at the end of every ride, you had a total number and you were now accountable to your performance that day. And forget about competing with other people. It wasn't about that. It was about being able to actually compete with yourself. And when you compete with yourself, that's how you improve. It makes all the difference. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Women at Work here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Ruth Zuckerman, co-founder and creative director at Flywheel, who's talking to us about her new book, Riding High, and her amazing work in really advancing a revolution in physical fitness. Um, so, Ruth, I want to talk about this idea of metrics for a minute. Um, I know that when, and I was just talking to a colleague about this, when I started to run First, I ran for time, then I ran for distance, and then somebody gave me um, a heart rate monitor with a pace setter, and it changed the game. And I went from barely running three miles to within a year and a half running a marathon. Wow. Like having data. Now, granted, I work at Wharton. We kind of like data. But, (laughs) you know, the idea of having data and how it um, affects the way that you exercise was game-changing. Do you find that it's geeky, type A, data-driven people, or is it something that you, that you, I think you saw and believed it could work for everybody? Absolutely. I mean, the geeky people loved it, of course, but no, I would see every shape, size, profession, every kind of person in that room because, as I said before, they could now be accountable and they can know why they're not seeing results or why they're seeing incredible results. And it, look, there's nothing more exciting than seeing yourself succeed and progress. And that's what became so uh, captivating, and that's what hooked everyone into Flywheel. So just as a little part of my public service message to try and get people out to exercise who haven't tried it before, tell me a little bit, just explain how those metrics that you see, if you're a newbie and your instructor is instructing the class, what tools are there to help you exercise at your own pace? Really, the tools come from the reminders from our instructors, and that's how they're trained. Um, The instructor frequently during the course of the class will say, if you're not at my pace, don't worry about it. You're here. That's so much of the game in the first place. And you know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah, showing up is everything. Right, with, with statements like that to make sure the rider does not feel discouraged. And um, the, the instructor will also always give ranges, never, an, you know, you need to be at 58. You know, it, you would never hear that. It's, it's, it's giving the rider a range and, get, and letting them know that whatever they're doing, they're already successful. It's really an amazing message. So it's a part, it's, it reinforces that um, the environment that you created, it's the integration of a lot of different factors. 
Yes. And that that's part of the genius about how first you built SoulCycle and then parlayed that your learnings from that into Flywheel, which is about how all these components come together. Absolutely. So isn't there also a culture that you've created to the environment so that it's not just the technology and the training? Absolutely. And I was actually coming off of what you something you just said. I was thinking of mentioning how the cultures at SoulCycle and Flywheel were vastly different. And what's interesting is, obviously, both were successful, um, even though they were very opposite. At SoulCycle, we very quickly kind of became the club you can't get into, mm. unless you do. And <laughs> that has a lot of appeal to a lot of people. People love that. And then when they're in and they're doing it, they feel really great. That's big cool and factor. Yes, exactly. And that was a huge part of the success of SoulCycle. And um, when we started Flywheel, I wanted to go in the complete opposite direction purely because it was more of who I am. And I wanted those other people to have a shot at it. And I wanted them to come in and try this. And um, so we kind of did go in the opposite way and wanted to make it as open and welcoming to everybody as possible. And for uh, Flywheel, my partner Jay and I, it it sounds so simple, Laura, but we were both very nice people and kind people. And I do believe in business, there's a certain um, importance to kind of the trickle down theory. And I feel that, you know, to our fault, we were both people who really needed to please others and be liked. And when that's your MO, you're going to cultivate a group of people that also are really nice and, and want to please and be liked. And, and that's exactly what happened. Look, you may call it simple. I think of it as brilliant. We talk Thank all you. the pi- time on this show about how culture starts at the top. And that surprisingly, so many cultures, business cultures, are created where being generous and being kind is not part of it. And you did it completely instinctively. You didn't need a team of analysts to tell you that this is good business sense. Exactly. So I'm going to carry on with our conversation that starts with dance and connects the dots between the amazing business success that you've achieved. Partnering in dance is essential. You know, in fact, when I go to see dance, um, I'm mesmerized when you see the magic of partnerships that really work. And it's certainly something you have to learn how to do. We know you learned how to do it on stage. How did you learn to do it in business? Well, it didn't go that well for me. Um, And what I learned is it's very hard to find the right partner. It is in life, too. Oh, my God. In every aspect, for sure. And, uh, you know, it's pretty known at this point that the partnership at SoulCycle fell apart. And that and the way in which it happened was devastating. I just I hadn't predicted it. And it felt like I was blindsided and it was um, just, uh, it was unfathomable to me. And um, as a result, I once again was in a position that I'd never predicted. And I was going to have to leave this business that I birthed and that was built on my entire following of riders that I had brought over from the Reebok Club where I had been teaching. And so a um, lot of lessons learned from that. Um, I mean, one of the most obvious uh, is legal protection and making sure when you go into any partnership, uh, you need to be legally protected and taken care of. And I wasn't. Um, that was a huge lesson for me. And I talk a lot about in the book about studying kind of your relationships that have happened for you from birth to the present. And obviously the first relationships we form are with our parents and a certain dynamic is set and a lot of them bring challenges. And for me, it wasn't until I really started to explore myself through therapy um, that I started to get much clearer on the dynamic in my relationship with both my mother and my father. And what was interesting to me is that I ended up kind of replicating some of the negative parts of that relationship, Mm -hmm. specifically the one with my mother. And in retrospect, I could see how there were similarities, believe it or not, to my relationships with my partners at Seoul and my relationship with my mother. And um, I kind of reset a situation where it was hard for me to have my voice. And that's exactly what happened to me growing up. And so 
it was such a lesson, a lesson to be learned in terms of who my next partners would be and what to look for. It's so interesting. And I really appreciated the candor with which you wrote yeah. about that and also connecting those dots. Because when I think about it, marriage is both a romantic, emotional, and a professional endeavor. I don't mean professional like we do it as a job, but there's a business relationship there. You're partners yeah. in making a life and a world happen, and there's emotional component, and both of those need to work. And in at work, especially when we create things and we build things together, there's also a practical business-related and an emotional component. How have you, when you think about it now with all the lessons you learned, mm-hmm. what advice you have, whether it's for yourself or any of us, about how do we make both of those things work? Both of those things, meaning business Together, the business and the emotional part. How do yeah. you stay passionate about work, invested in the thing that you're making, but be smart about it as a business? Yes. I think that one of the things that's most important when you are going into a partnership in a business is there, there needs to be a certain respect among the partners. And more specifically, a respect for what each partner is bringing to the business, what the expertise is um, with each partner. And there has to be a certain, there has to be discussion around how are the partners going to handle disagreements and, um, you know, different points of view on things. And for me at Flywheel, I had two partners and we each had our own area of expertise and we each stayed in our own lanes until we wanted to contribute to maybe um, a situation that wasn't in our lane, but we made sure the other partner was okay with it. And, and that became, once we had that comfort level, we could collaborate and we could you know, suggest things and be okay if the other partner said, that's the worst idea I've ever heard. And then we'd be okay with it. But Mm -hmm. just as long as we had that understanding from the get-go. It's funny that you say that. I had a partnership with somebody I still admire immensely um, and care about. But part of the problem was we just really liked each other and we really hit it off and we were excited and we jumped into an endeavor together. And I don't think we ever really talked about expectations and roles and responsibilities. Right. And we certainly never put it on paper. For sure. I think it's a really common mistake. I think you go into a partnership and you're super, all of you are super excited about the idea and you just want to like, you know, step on the pedal and it's, it could cause a lot of problems. A lot of people start businesses that they don't ever expect to get large. And as you noted, more businesses yeah. succeed than people realize. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, and we want to dream, and we especially want the people listening and the women listening to believe that they can build big businesses. Absolutely. In those early stages, talk to me about both the tactical process and the emotional experience of calling a lawyer and writing up contracts and figuring that stuff out. Um, I know a lot of people for whom it would feel awkward, almost like they're almost like writing a prenup. Like, do we really need to do this or does it mean we're going to fail? Well, it's for me, um, you know, when, <clears throat> excuse me, when we started SoulCycle, we had a very simple process and uh, we very easily decided on our terms. And then I think ultimately that was part of the problem because they didn't, because we had problems because we didn't get, <laughs> we didn't get specific enough. And it was such a learning lesson for me that when it came time to start Flywheel and I was very, as they say, lawyered up for my contract, <laughs> um, I was comfortable with the fact that someone was protecting me and that there would be disagreements along the way when we were writing up the contract because, you know, my most important focus was that I was going to be protected at the end of the day. And if there were too many arguments and we weren't going to agree, then the business, then I wouldn't have stayed in the partnership and I would have known that. And no harm, no foul. You told a wonderful story in the book about how you wound up negotiating the contract at Flywheel, or rather how the negotiations of your contract (laughs) at Flywheel um, finally came to conclusion. Yes. Um, And I, I loved it because, A, so many women... Um, have a hard time negotiating, both because we don't believe that we can, we don't know that we should, we don't have the skills to do it, and that um, we don't always know, and it's difficult just because of interpersonal dynamics and gender expectations. Yep. Um, 
for women to advocate for what they need. And you went through it in a very interesting way. Can you tell us the story of what happened and when yes. for a moment it looked like you were walking away? <laughs> yes. And what I want to say, what I want to add on to what you just said, which is all very accurate, is at the same time, women have really good guts. And sometimes we don't trust our guts. And I know from my experiences that when I haven't trust my gut, I made the wrong, I made the wrong decision. And so when I was negotiating my contract with Jay and David for Flywheel, uh, David, and I would say this if he was sitting in the room, can be extremely difficult and could be <laughs> bullyish and like part he, of why he's effective <laughs> exactly and yes and you need a certain amount of that in, in a partnership um and it was interesting because he and jay had been partners previously and they had that good cop bad cop thing down really well and so david got tough and he got really tough and it was starting to get more and more unpleasant for me and having just come from a partnership that didn't work I started getting nervous about this, and I did get to a point uh, where my lawyer called me and said, look, this is not going well. Is this a partner you really want to go into business with? <clears throat> Excuse me. And I said, you know what? No, it's not. Um, I did not want to make another mistake. And I had my, and so my lawyer said, I'm going to call them back and say, you've changed your mind. And I said, do it. And when I tell people the story in retrospect, they, their first um, – comment is, oh, that was a great negotiating ploy. But it wasn't a negotiating ploy. I really, really had resolved that I was not going to go into this partnership. But in fact, it did turn out to be a, uh, a negotiating ploy. And I ended up meeting with Jay privately, who was begging me to change my mind and ended up promising me everything I wanted. So I guess it worked. It clearly did. Yes. Um, I think there's something important in this, though. Knowing when to stop. I know that as um, I was a trained visual artist, mm -hmm. knowing when to pick up your brush to stop because yeah. you're actually going to ruin it if you keep going. Yep. When do you call a dance done or in training? When do you actually stop because you need rest? It's not going to help you. Yeah. Or on the other side, when do you leave a business relationship and walk away? How do you look? How did do you look at that idea of saying stop, done, walk away, whether it's for positive or negative reasons? Do you still do it by gut? Are there things that um, you weigh out when you're making those decisions now? I think for the most part, your gut will start the ball rolling because it kind of tells you where this is probably going to end up. But then, <clears throat> excuse me, I do think it's important to go through the ritual of figuring out if it is the right decision, you know, going right back to that old fashioned technique of sitting down with pen and paper and writing the positives and the negatives. The pro and con right? list. Right. It always works. And, um, you know, def yes, definitely going through a thought process. So you make sure you are making the right decision. But again, I think initially your gut tells you what's right. And it's funny because when I think about that, sometimes my gut gives me a signal and it's not the, the immediate message isn't the right message, but it's a signal that something needs examination. Exactly. And it's the same thing with the pro-con list. I've written pro-con lists that I thought were going to, you know, I was even stacking the deck for the thing that I wanted. And then I'm surprised at what results and it makes me re-examine the whole thing. Yes. So it may be that it's sometimes it's as much about process as content. I think so. Um, what about the emotional process of leaving something behind? How do you... Um, you know, you've gone through all these transitions, including raising two wonderful girls <laughs> who've grown up and you're still close with them. Very. But that um, how do you what advice would you have for people that are embarking on the next stage of something, whether it's a new business, leaving a business or like my daughter's going to go to college soon. I don't know yeah. how I'm going to cope with that. Yes. Um, so many challenges like that that come up for us. And I think that it's really important and this might sound cliche, but it's really important to sit with the discomfort, to acknowledge that you are going through an emotional, emotionally challenging time, and that's okay. And knowing that it's actually a moment, so to speak, maybe mm -hmm. it's a week, maybe it's a month, I don't know, but it passes. And again, we always learn from those moments, and those moments make us stronger. 
It sounds like you learned a lot from all of those moments that you went through. I sure did. (laughs) And, um, you know, I could talk to you all day about a lot of them, but I want to dive into something very particular because I think it's really important, especially for people that are launching new businesses, starting over with business. Mm -hmm. And it's... um, it was something that you did with the employees at Flywheel that I thought was really extraordinary. And it was benefits and stock options. Yep. And solid pay. Talk to me about how you think now about what's important to attracting and retaining talent on your team. Oh my God. We you know, we had made that decision from the get go that we were going to do that and especially in this particular business in fitness, the instructors are so important. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're really the crux of the business and uh, determine the success of the business. And uh, it was funny because we, when we would hire people and bring them on, we would tell them you're going to, you're, we would explain that you're getting options and being creative people, they didn't necessarily know what that meant. And <laughs> they kind of discarded it. Oh, okay, great. You know, not really understanding. And then when we had our transaction, suddenly they were each receiving uh, quite a significant check. If you could see the looks on these people's faces, they were just beyond thrilled. Did you feel and, like Santa Claus? Totally. And it was just, talk about gratification. I mean, it just for me and my partners felt so good. They so appreciated it. And um, I, I think it's so important to treat your employees well, to treat them as well as you treat your customers. I can't emphasize that enough. And I think that was a huge part of the success of Flywheel as well. For those of you who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work. And it's our weekly conversation about how we get more women to join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and I'm talking with Ruth Zuckerman, co-founder and creative director at Flywheel. We're talking about all the amazing things she's done and learned and about her great book, Riding High, How I Kissed Soul Cycle Goodbye, co-founded Flywheel, and built the life I always wanted. So coming back to this idea of attracting and retaining talent, Mm -hmm. you know, you said before that you brought a compassion to the way that you lead, you know, a fundamental value of being nice, partly because you know it's the right thing to do. And, you know, not to knock it. You want to be liked. You want the people around you to be happy. And you also started to see that it was a way to draw serious talent and retain them. Those values, and and we hear businesses talk about this all the time. Well, yeah, those are good things to strive for, but where do you find the money? How did you figure out how to integrate that those set of values with the financial realities of a startup? I think that because I was so passionate about this concept, it became infectious for all of the people that we introduced this business to when we did our, our fir- we did a, fr- a friends and family round to for our first investment and to you know take care of the startup costs mm-hmm. and people I think were so intrigued and bought into it because because of our passion for what we were about to do <clears throat> excuse me and and so between my my passion and those values you were talking about in terms of, sorry, qualities in terms of leadership and, and nurturing my, uh, my talent pool, it really just went such a long way because these people felt cared for. And that was a huge component that we would describe to would-be investors because they also knew how important the talent was and had confidence in me as a leader. I particularly appreciate it knowing um, the passion and hard work and the expense that it takes for particularly dancers, performing artists, even visual artists, Mm -hmm. to develop their craft and practice it without a full-time job. And how impoverished so many exquisitely talented people are. And it's like you created a new paradigm that recognized their unique importance to the business. But there was also, I think, a very practical concern. You invested a lot of time in training, didn't you? We did. Talk to us about how you did that and why. So not only training these people to teach with a particular method, which is the method that I came up with, with these metrics that were on the bike, um, we wanted to have it be universal. So we knew that everyone was getting a well thought out, safe, effective workout. Um, But on top of it, on top of that training, we also really 
nurtured our instructors to do even more. And sure enough, you know, because they were all so talented, not only in simply teaching classes, but each of them had their own additional talents, whether it was in a managerial role or in a training role, so that as the business grew, they could become trainers for for new instructors coming in. Um, and that also went such a long way in instructors feeling important and feeling good about their responsibilities and what their job was. And it allowed people in fitness to have real careers, which they never did quite a while ago. Yeah, that may be one of the other important paradigms that you reconstructed in this, Ruth. Thank you. I tried very hard to do that. And it sounds like you did it with a plum and invention. Um, and that also your partners got on board with you. Did you have a hard time selling this to them? <laughs> um, no. they uh, In the beginning, they had some questions about certain aspects or parts of the business I would talk about, you know, when it, when it, when I started getting all kind of emotional about feeling the music and the importance of the music and, and letting, you know, having the playlist be dictated by, by what my mood was that day. They looked at me like I had three heads. They like had no <laughs> idea what I was talking about, but you know, as they saw it working and began to really understand what I was talking about, they had nothing but respect for it and excitement for the product. Look, whether it was Steve Jobs or you at Flywheel, (laughs) the aesthetic components really matter. They make the difference. Absolutely. And it sounds like for you, it was everything from the look and feel, the flow of the classes, the quality of the teaching, the design of the studio, um, and that the people were inseparable from that. Exactly. So, you know, Soul Cycle Flywheel, these have become very common, um, very popular, very well known, and so have you. You've started to experience some of your own celebrity. Talk to me about both the relationship, how you felt um, as celebrities started to come into your world and what you learned about dealing with them, and then how it felt for you to become the public face. So there's a certain excitement, of course, when celebrities show up for your class. And and obviously, when you have celebrities in your class, it's, it's going to be a big um, attraction for others. When others would see celebrities in the class, it would make them want to come even more. And um, there's no question that it's exciting. And um, with that being said, when celebrities would come and, and actually become regulars, you really start to realize that they're people like everybody else and they want the same things and they want to be noticed and they might want to shout out during the class and, and hear, great job, Laura, or, or whoever it is. Um, and I think that's an important lesson to know that they're human beings like everybody else and have very similar needs. Um, I will say just as an anecdote that um, there are celebrities and there are celebrities. And for me, I think one of the most exciting moments was when Sting started taking my class. And I, I mentioned it in the book because I've always been a fan of the police and of Sting. And I just thought, wow. I mean, I was really, I, I was shaken the first class. <laughs> I know, my mouth would have gone dry. <laughs> oh, my God. I um, was definitely nervous. And I'm not usually with celebrities, but I was with him. And of course, he ended up being so lovely, and we ended up being becoming friends, and that was a very exciting moment for me at Flywheel. But in terms of my own celebrity, it's still, again, a little hard for me to even acknowledge that there is any celebrity here. But yes, I, I do get noticed in certain places where, you know, in New York and Sometimes I've gotten recognized on planes, and um, it's always very exciting. At the same time, it can be problematic, and I unfortunately had to learn that the hard way um, in that I became friendly with a couple of celebrities in my class who were uh, married and ended up getting divorced, and I became very good friends with the man of the couple, and before I knew it, I my name was plastered all over page six of the New York Post <sighs> as an adulteress. And uh, I'm laughing about it now. But trust me, when I woke up that morning and saw that uh, it was I, I talk about shaking. I was right. trembling. It's um, a terrible a, thing to have to deal with. It was horrendous for me to deal with it. It was horrendous to think that my daughters were were going to see that. I mean, they were grown, obviously, at that point, but even more so. And. Uh, the whole experience was really upsetting and um, unfair and not true. And so 
that was certainly a learning lesson in what happens when people know who you are. Right. And and um, both why you need a thick skin and oh when God. you have yeah. to kind of ground yourself and know what's going on in your own world. Exactly. Um, on the lighter side, though, yes. um, one of the things you did was you partnered with Pantene. And um, for you, ha- having gone in a journey of addressing your own insecurities and emerging as this beautiful, successful, now mature woman. Um, How did you come to terms with that, particularly when now you're the face of Pantene? It was really mind-blowing for me (laughs) when when I was told that they wanted me for this campaign. I was beside myself with excitement. I mean, I can't describe it any other way but... But then saying, I mean, what woman does not think about wanting to get up there and flipping their hair in the way that they do in a Pantene commercial? And it was really it was unbelievable to me that I got to have that experience and um, definitely felt like a milestone in terms of, again, being asked to do something, you know, for a product that big. Ruth, with just the minute that we have left before we have to say goodbye today, when you think about what you want for the people in your life, the instructors that you've trained, your own kids, um, what do you hope they learn from your lessons? I want them to learn that anything is possible, that failure is just a part of your process, and to not let it stop you because the real definition of failing is when you stop trying and I think that would probably probably be the point I would want to drive home the most, that we're human beings and we're all going to fail at times during our trials and tribulations and things we try. But to never stop trying and to believe in yourself, to trust your gut and know that it has been proven many times over now that women especially can go pretty far. Absolutely. And you have. You've gone far beyond flipping that fabulous Pantene hair to actually (laughs) creating a revolution that's benefiting people's lives every day. Ruth, thank you so much for all you do. And thank you for joining us on Women at Work. Of course. Thank you for having me. And thank all of you for listening today. If you have a question about something you heard on today's show, you can email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can find Ruth's book, Riding High, on Amazon.com. I'm Laura Zara, and you've been listening to us on Women at Work on SiriusXM 130. You can follow us on Twitter at BizRadio132. Write to us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Have a great week, everybody, and continue to shine. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.